0: Welcome to the show, it's Dr. Z. It is Sunday, the 13th of February, 2022. And just a quick housekeeping, we're gonna talk about ending pandemic restrictions. And I'm gonna kind of tell you why I think this should happen. I've been saying it for a few weeks now, but I think now I'm really, 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 really adamant about this. But I'm willing to hear dissenting opinions on this, so let's talk it out, alt-middle style. Quick housekeeping, dude, If you like this kind of stuff we do, the way that we support all this is through you. Like we're in your pocket. So you can support our show like one time on PayPal, paypal.me forward slash zdogmd, And I respond to all of those donations with a personal email. Check in your spam box if you haven't gotten one because sometimes it ends up in spam. And um, it may take me a week or two to respond, but I really appreciate your support. And then the other way you can support us is joining our subscriber groups where we do live shows exclusively for you and have these conversations. It's our alt-middle tribe where we're trying to make sense of the world and uh, love each other at the same time, which is awesome. Not in a polyamorous way, you know, in a legit platonic intellectual way. And the best place to do that is on Locals, which is um, an off the main big tech social media platform that is creator-driven, right? So if you go to zdogmd.locals.com, you can sign up there. Right after this show, I'm gonna go live to Locals for supporters only. So if you sign up, you can get the skinny there. Um, and then there's other supporter groups on Facebook and YouTube that you can join as well. And I go live to those guys as well. But I like Locals the best because no big tech, no Zuckerberg, no Googleplex, just us doing our thing. All right, back to this. i um, pulling up your comments here. What do you think about the Moderna CEO Socrates, or should I say Socrates? Uh, I I have no idea. I really, I know nothing about the Moderna CEO, Um, but I'll say this. So we're at a point now where you have Canadian truckers throwing a fit, like blocking supply chain lines to the United States over vaccine mandates. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. They have a ton of other different grievances Um, and it's a relatively small group, but it's big enough to disrupt everything you have people in the United States kind of scratching their head because they were told, well, if you boost, if you do this, if you do that, if you mask, you can stop COVID. And then Omicron happened and everybody got Omicron. Like every single person got Omicron. Like it was actually figured that not since the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic have that many humans been sick at once and by sick meaning omicron which you could call oma cold you could call it oma flu you could call it covid depending on whether you were vaccinated in which case it's usually oma cold or oma flu or you're young and otherwise healthy in which case it's omicron or oma i mean oma cold or Omaflu, or if you're older unvaccinated multiple comorbidities it's covid because that's the sort of risk stratification Still, most of the people very sick and dying in hospitals are have comorbidities, are older, are unvaccinated, right? So Omicron is so contagious that it basically rips through, p- and, and it's relatively resistant to vaccine protection, although mm-hmm. CDC will tell you, well, if you get a booster, your neutralizing antibody levels are high and your risk of actually getting infected is lower, which is true, but it's not a whole lot lower, right? The point being, No longer can you say that, well, just getting vaccinated is such a huge community benefit because the chances are you're still gonna catch it or spread it anyways, you're just not gonna die. So the community benefit is the hospitals don't get overwhelmed. Well, at the peak of this thing, and by the way, cases are plummeting as we sort of predicted they would in December, looking at the South African examples, something that's this contagious, it tears through vulnerables really quick and then comes off really fast. Hospitals got very busy, but at no point were we, were we seeing bodies piling up in morgues and all this other stuff, because we actually did in most parts of the country decouple deaths from cases to the degree that you have so much pre-existing immunity from vaccination and from previous natural infection that unlike in the Delta and the past winter's waves, when you get all these cases, you don't necessarily get the same level of death. Now, deaths did increase, and they're, gonna, they're a lagging indicator, so they still kind of go up. Um, but it's nothing like it was, you know, where we had the peak, where basically, you know, there wasn't all this pre-existing immunity. So now we're in a very different part of the pandemic. Now, I'm going to say all this based on what we know right now, because that's the best we can do. We can only take the information we have and kind of make the best assessment we can of, first of all, what is going on and then what ought to happen in terms of policy, right? Um, Now, anything could happen. You get a new variant that's more lethal, that evades vaccine totally and previous immunity totally while being very lethal. That's not Omicron, uh, in which case, hey, I'll be the first to come here and be like, okay, we got to change this approach that we're talking about today. Um, But as of right now, I'm not seeing that, right? Um, So he, and you know, people are bringing up in the comments, like Pedro says, long COVID uh, is gonna be the real deal and so on and so forth. Okay, so just understand this. With any virus, there are these longer syndromes. We just don't understand them. They are biopsychosocial, meaning there's a biological trigger, a viral infection. There's a social component, like what are the expectations and understandings and sort of societal stuff around this kind of concept or disease. And then there's the psychological component, which feeds back on itself. And we've done shows on this with Dr. Rachel Zofness and others about you know, what is long COVID, right? And we need to study it, we need to learn about it and all of that. So that's a, that's a risk there is long COVID, short COVID, like getting very sick, dying, having debility, blood clots, strokes, heart attacks, things like that from COVID itself, right? Those are the short-term risks. So where are we now? We're in a situation where most of the population has either been vaccinated or infected. And in very highly vaccinated areas like the San Francisco Bay Area, New York, um, the sort of, uh, these sort of areas that have very high vaccine penetrance, we do see a decoupling of cases from deaths and hospitalizations, especially here in the Bay Area. We just, it's just not, it's not a thing. You know, sure, people still get very sick. It's still a tragedy. There are still people who are immunocompromised, who are at risk. All of this is true. In 1900, I'm just setting up, I'm trying to paint a picture for you that's gonna put put you in a position to understand the case I'm making that we need to stop every single pandemic restriction, including vaccine mandates, including mask mandates, including kids wearing masks, including travel restrictions, including um, thinking about it, including hearing about it on the news, all of it, I want it gone. And and I'm trying to build a case for this. So in 1900, 1% of the population died of infectious diseases like every year. And yet we did not lock down the country. We did not wear masks everywhere we go. And the reason we did that, we did not do those things is because people realize that there is a risk benefit to living. There, every single thing you do in life, and I see all your super chats, guys, I'll try to get to them. I'll rewind and look at those comments first, the guys who are donating. Um, There's a risk benefit to life Every time you get in a car, you risk your life. If you travel cross country, you risk your life, especially in a vehicle. If you go swimming, you risk your life. If you own a pool, you risk your life and the life of your children. If your child goes walking to school and crosses the street, they risk their life. These are a consequence of being alive. There is risk. So with covid Early on, it made a lot of sense. We didn't know fully what the risks were and the risks we did understand were pretty catastrophic potentially. And so particularly since we didn't have a vaccine, sure, let's think about masking, let's think about um, closing down for a period while we catch our breath and flatten the curve. Remember that, flatten the curve, make sure our hospitals don't get overwhelmed like they did in Italy and so on. And it made a lot of sense to be cautious at that time. Right Then as we learned more, We said, oh, maybe we ought to think about, you know, opening up while we can and doing this kind of push and pull, and then there was a lot of controversy, and then, of course, the political tribalization, and, of course, social media creating the the, uh, schism of what is even going on, like people completely disagreeing on what's even happening. Is this thing a hoax? Is it, you know, is Fauci a a demon? Is Fauci a saint? All this stuff happening, and that— Basically, we did a show with Daniel Schmachtenberger. That's a two and a half hour show. That if you if you get the chance to watch the whole thing, awesome because it's amazing and we talk about all this divisional stuff and how we make sense of the world and so on. I'm going to actually get it captioned and put time codes on it. We're waiting for the captions to come back so that I can pull clips that I think are very relevant that are shorter. But either way, then you can click to the time code that you think is um, relevant to what you want to learn about. It was really a great conversation. The guy's super smart and he taught and he, he's working with Tristan Harris of the. Social Dilemma fame, a center for humane technology about how do we heal these divisions and come to a synthesis position instead of this thesis antithesis kind of COVID nonsense. How do we come up with a higher level synthesis position? It means we need to have proper debate, not like debates where you're trying to win or lose, but debates where we're trying to find truth. We need to be able to steel man each other's arguments. like Instead of straw manning where you like make a BS uh, ascertainment of what the opponent is saying and then beat it to death because it's garbage. You go, no, this is what they're saying, and you and you represent their position so clearly that even they would be like, yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. It shows respect and it shows understanding of their position. Then you can argue over details, right? Um, so all of that in the in the early days that all fell apart uh, uh, of the pandemic, right? We just we just don't do that. It was politicized heavily, and then vaccine, not vaccine, all of this. So, but once you have a vaccine. And you have data that says, well, you know what? This thing prevents severe disease. The game changed. Back last year in like, you know, January, February, March, me and Monica Gandhi and Marty McCary and others, by the way, everyone's been criticized, right? Oh, you predicted the end of the pandemic and this and that, and you were saying variant shmariant, and you were saying herd immunity and this and that. Yeah. All of that would have been right (laughs) if people had all gotten vaccinated, right? But we know that's not gonna happen because of all the division and all the skepticism and all of that, and that's all fine. But now we're in a position where we really are reaching like 90 plus percent population immunity, right? Paul Offit said it himself, the the guru of vaccines. Like we're now between natural infection, Omicron, and vaccine, we're reaching these high levels of, of immunity, right? to the point where we can say, wait, now what are we doing? Because the whole point is risk benefit, flatten curve, save hospitals, so on and so forth. Watch out for catastrophic societal risk. Well, where is the catastrophic societal risk now? Omicron is on the downswing, right? You have individual options to keep you safe if you're concerned, you can get double vaccinated, triple vaccinated, even quadruple vaccinated at some point if you're immunocompromised or elderly or whatever the data will eventually pan out to say that you need to do if you're worried about it. If you're young and you've already been infected twice or once and you've had half a vaccination whatever, what 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 further protection are you looking for? You are more likely to die in an auto accident. You're more likely to die of like a homicide. You're more like, you know, there's so many higher risks for you in those younger age brackets that this is not an existential societal risk for you. Kids, same thing. Some will get very sick, yes. So you can vaccinate them. That one's younger than five, not yet, which is good because FDA finally said, oh, wait, no, actually, let's not rush this thing because data, yeah, data. Risk benefit for kids, figure that out. Before, you know, 400 kids under five have died of COVID so far in the two years. Now, that is unacceptable. 400 dead children is unacceptable. And yet, what can you, so are you gonna rush through a poorly studied, meaning they're using endpoints of immune markers instead of actual outcomes in kids so that we can then make parents feel better by giving them like three, because the two doses wasn't enough to generate immunity by these surrogate markers. So you're gonna give them three? For what benefit exactly? Like more than 400 kids died of drowning, homicide, abuse, car accidents. We don't stop driving. You know, we don't shut down all of society to prevent, you know, homicide. We don't put cameras in homes to prevent abuse. So let's pull our heads out of our butts people, let's understand risk. So now why is this important? Because now we're at a point in the pandemic where you have the tools. You can get vaccinated or not. You can wear an N95 high grade mask or not. If you're at high risk, you can make that ascertainment yourself or within collaboration with your healthcare professional. So now it's on you to make those decisions. So why are we treating this like it's an existential catastrophic societal risk while introducing Existential catastrophic societal risks in the form of restrictions that are leading to societal unrest. And not only that, but let's let, let even get beyond that. We're not living our lives. And people will say, "Oh, well, you know, in, in a lot of the country, they are living their lives, and so on and so forth." Okay, so so let's look at the San Francisco Bay Area, where we still have mask mandates until next week, when Comrade Newsom's going to remove them, but not from schools. Schools are continuing to have mask mandates for children, and the question is, we're in the one, one of the most highly vaccinated parts of the country, if not the world. Here, we're about as safe as you can get. Yet we have the most intense restrictions on freedom. Go to Mississippi, which has one of the lowest vaccination rates, and they have much less restriction on freedom. So this doesn't even make sense at all, does it? So my argument now, and I think the arguments of others, and it's funny to see even the press, even the mainstream media is starting to shift on this. They're starting to go, wait, maybe um, we shouldn't be forcing kids to wear masks because it's been two years where their lives have been disrupted and uh, we don't really know the downside on their learning and speech development and emotional development. And, but if you talk to certain teachers and speech pathologists and others, they'll say they are at least concerned about it, which means it, it may have effects, which means at least we should study it, but we haven't. And uh, maybe we should consider now not doing this. Oh, they're finally saying this, huh? The stuff that we've been saying for months and months and months and months. Look, and all this can be local. Individual districts and and localities can make decisions. That's all fine. It's based on the culture and and the intention of what ought to be in those communities. That's called politics. Fine, that's all great. But when we're talking about overall picture here, right? When you see people, you know, blocking intersections with trucks in Canada, which by the way, that's a more complicated thing. It's not just vaccines. They have a ton of grievances, right? Against Trudeau and all those guys. I can't profess to understand all of it, but I'll say that when you put in these measures, and the Canadians are pretty aggressive about these measures, although if you believe the New York Times, uh, the Canadian public is like on on balance inclined to have these measures, but overall you gotta understand. So mandating a vaccine at this point, what's the societal benefit? You're not really protecting others that much, and that's tiny. you're creating psychological reactants where people are like, stop telling me what to do, especially with my own body, when I can just see clearly that tons of people who've been vaccinated still get infected, even if they've been boosted. Um, There's all this... conflicting information online that I can't make sense of because I'm not a doctor or an immunologist. So if I watch Rogan, I think one thing. If I watch Sanjay Gupta, I think another thing. And how am I supposed to make sense of this? And that's the sense-making crisis that Daniel and I talk about on the show and we've talked about forever, and how do you find the alt-middle synthesis position, right? So all you're doing now is creating resistance, right? You may get a few more people vaccinated just because they give up, You know, like Vinay Prasad said, I have to get a booster or I was gonna lose my job, even though I know for all the data that I have says that I'm a young, healthy person. I have no reason to be boosted. And there's still older people that aren't boosted who could use it and older people who've not been vaccinated. Why are we wasting all our political capital forcing young people to comply with these measures that aren't really gonna make them safer? It's, you know, it's basically hygiene theater and political posturing. So What's the downside is we're still talking about this. We're still changing our lives. We're still hurting our children. I'm gonna go on record and say we're hurting our children. This is editorializing, okay? We're hurting our children with this. And I'll tell you, there's two ways we're hurting them. Number one, we're putting them in masks. We're putting them, there are are schools that make you wear the masks outdoors. So we're doing this nonsense to kids who ought to be as free as possible. Like this is the time of their life where it, they are an open probability wave, a, a quantum fluctuation of, 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 of opportunity. And we've just Yeah, you know, you can't do the sport without wearing a mask. You can't, you can't, no, you're not gonna do, no. You can't ride the bus. No, you gotta eat outside. You got, no, you can't. Dude, dude, we've never done anything like this, guys. And at this point in the pandemic, it's pretty clear that this is just dumb. It's just dumb. So at this point now, you have individual tools. You have clear evidence of societal instability and disruption with the top-down control measures that that people are reacting against, depending on your politics and your own moral sense of like what I... Freedom versus oppression and care versus harm and fairness versus cheating and all the things we talk about, the Jonathan Haidt moral matrix. It's at a point now where individuals can make a risk decision, right? I think you should end every single vaccine mandate. There may be some exceptions, like, for example, if you work in a nursing home and even lowering a a risk of infection transmission with vaccine even this much with an elderly population that ought to be vaccinated too is maybe a good idea. I'm willing to entertain those ideas, but like to to mandate it even for all healthcare workers in general without, look, look, and this is the problem. Even the mandates would be easier to stomach if they were attached to common sense, scientifically valid, exemptions like I've been infected with coronavirus already or I had two doses and I got Omicron and now you want me to have a booster so I spend a day with shaking chills and all of that. Again, that's one of the side effects, just the normal natural immune side effects of the thing so that I can fulfill your stupid mandate with no benefit to me and hardly any benefit to those around me. Like people just will recognize that that's crazy and they do. They send me thousands of emails saying, am I crazy? This is what they're making me do, right? And I can't respond to all those emails, but I peek at them and go, yeah, yeah, they're crazy. They're totally crazy. Like this is going to generate a public health crisis in the form of decreased vaccine uptake for children's vaccines and things like shingles and other things that will help adults, pneumovax, you know, tetanus shot every 10 years, these kind of things, adult vaccines, like we are going to generate resistance to this and we're gonna harm public health for like a generation by being stupid. I I really wonder whether people in these positions of power are simply addicted to the power. And here's here's the trick, and Vinay and I have talked about this. Like from an alt-middle perspective, it's clear that this is, we know that it's all tribalized and politicized, right? But now you're in a position where You have one tribe, the synthesis tribe, the blue tribe, right? That is in a position to create mandates that they know preferentially force the other tribe, the red tribe politically to comply with something. So a vaccine mandate in a way, because if you look at actually the the politics here, people always go, well, I'm a a conservative and I'm pro-vaccine, that's all fine. I'm talking about in broad sense, If you look at statistics, conservatives tend to uh, overemphasize, beyond what the data shows, risks of vaccine, and liberals tend to overemphasize, beyond what the data shows, risks of COVID. This is because we've already tribalized it. We've politicized it from the beginning, right? So if that's the case, if you have a vaccine mandate now, it's like a really good way for Blue Church here to antagonize and harass and control Red Church, which makes it even more unconsciously desirable for Blue Church to want vaccine mandates and for Red Church to park their trucks in intersections. Do you see? For what benefit? For what benefit? Because by the way, both tribe is blind to their own blindness because they're in a hive mind that's instantiated by social media an echo chamber that's instantiated by social media where they're only seeing in their feed stuff just angering them, right? And Daniel and I talk about this in our show. Um, so now, now you have this existential risk of division, which further destabilizes society, with what benefit? So what's the benefit of vaccine mandate now? I would argue nothing. I mean. Let's let's steel man the argument for vaccine mandates. All right. Let's in other words, let's try to let me see if I can express it the way, the best ways I've I've seen it expressed. If you're an employer, if you're the government, et cetera, you're looking at people and you're going, listen, I don't want to pay the cost of your unvaccinated ass ending up in the hospital or being absent from work because you're sick with uh, COVID, because you didn't get vaccinated. I don't want you spreading it at work even though that risk is relatively small, but I don't want you spreading it at work. And <clears throat> as part of a societal covenant or a covenant at our at this employment place, um, I think it's reasonable to have you as protected as possible with a vaccine that we've seen the data is safe and effective, meaning safe, you're not gonna get sick. The risk of myocarditis in younger people than 30 is there, but it's very small and people generally get better Without a lot of drama, although they often are hospitalized, um, if they get it, uh, myocarditis, which again is very rare, so it's not unreasonable. We we you know we compel childhood vaccinations. We um, compel healthcare workers to get influenza vaccine every winter, but there's lots of exemptions, or they can wear a mask if they don't. So we're going to compel you to do it at a place of employment, or the federal government, or uh, school kids or any of that. And it makes sense because again, the area under the curve is we'll benefit society, will benefit health, we'll benefit the bottom line by doing this. So that's the argument for vaccine mandates. And there's more, right? You could say more. You could say, you know, there's a historical precedent for it. Um, the vaccines really do pre- prevent severe disease, which is very important. So there's just a care versus harm precedent here, like we wanna save lives and so on. All right so there's i think the that's a reasonable steel man of that argument i think and there's probably more like people can feed in like there's other arguments for doing it and so on um you know and again i think some of it is social contract stuff and um oh protecting the uh protecting the um most vulnerable, so people who are immunocompromised, the very old, the very young, kids who can't be vaccinated. By compelling adults and older children to be vaccinated, you create a cocoon around them and less circulating virus, less severe disease. And of course, the parents then, when they get COVID, even though they have a vaccine, they're less sick so they can care for kids if the kids get sick. So it's a whole virtuous cycle, right? Now, I'll tell you, I actually agree if I could wave a magic wand and have everyone be vaccinated magically with no side effects, I would do it right now because I do agree that on balance, it is absolutely the right thing um, for the overall health and benefit of the humans on the planet, right? Okay, now here's why I disagree with these mandates. The benefits of the mandates that are argued for are really quite small actually in the big picture of things. They're really actually quite small because hospitals right now are not, you don't have bodies piling up in morgues. You don't have all of that stuff happening, right? So the argument of flattening the curve, by the way, that was the other argument for mandatory vaccines, is not really, uh, which I forgot to make in my steel man argument as I do this live, the, is not really so compelling, right? You could also argue that if, if your goal is something like that, well, then we ought to outlaw smoking, drinking, fast food, Corn subsidies, um, high fructose corn syrup, uh, all kinds of things that people do that's not good for them, that we still – heroin, That we, well, I guess that's outlawed already – that we still allow and we treat the consequences to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars every year right we let people live their lives and pay the consequences and we actually collectively pay that bill in the form of medicare medicaid social security all the expenses that we and the the other externalities of the costs that we socialize that we're all paying for in t- terms of lower wages higher taxes all of that we do that already and we've never said oh well you know we're going to outlaw all this do, do all of that and you know we regulate it and we do that but so I think that argument of like, hey, you know, save the hospitals and like, this is for their own good. Well then, you know, what about this other stuff? It's not internally consistent, right? Um, the other thing you could say is again, the, look at the context and the bigger picture of this. So if you're arguing that people should get mandated vaccines, first of all, you have to say, well, these things are safe. Well, they are for most people. But for the ones that they're not, it's usually younger people, myocarditis, and you can get rare reactions, right? So it should be something that people should be allowed to weigh if the community benefit isn't as massive as say for kids' vaccines. And it's not. Look at Omicron. People still get infected. In fact, some people still get hospitalized even though they've been vaccinated. You can protect yourself with the vaccine, you can protect yourself with a mask. So even vulnerable people, even people with immunocompromised can choose to wear N95 level, high grade surgical masks and so on. So there are options for everybody. And the truth is, it is still difficult for those people, right? But that's just a function of, it is a bummer. Sometimes things are a bummer But you cannot, again, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. As Spock said at the end of Star Trek II, this is a real thing. You have to look holistically. What is the downside of vaccine mandates? Now people have psychological reactance. They're told what to do. Since it's politicized, you end up with more, because you're trying to silence misinformation, you have more misinformation happening because you can't silence the internet. And all it does is create more tribalism and more silos, information echo chambers. Um, you have this huge problem and now you have truckers in Canada doing this thing. And it, it, there's gonna be other stuff, you guys. So I just, on balance, do not think it's a good idea with this vaccine to mandate it. Boosters, are you crazy? Mandating boosters? That like takes the original argument and makes it even more absurd to me, right? So, Again, we're in a position, and people will say, "Wow, well, the people dying in the hospitals are the..." It's like, okay, then they made a decision. Why should we? Why should we stress the entire society because a bunch of people made a bad decision for themselves? It's time to end every single restriction. Let things open up, get back to normal. The pandemic is over when we say it's over, because it's a construction socially of what we say is, okay, we're changing our lives because of a pandemic, huh? We can say we have tools, we have Paxlovid, we have Molnupiravir, we have treatments, we have dexamethasone, we have better ICU care. We have all those things. We ought to be shoring up our healthcare system, building and emerging a new, better healthcare system from the ashes of this broken crap, this fragile garbage, this this $3 trillion crap show that has worse outcomes in the developed world, yet we, who's talking about fixing that we've been talking about it for ten years, right but who's actually now why aren 't we focusing on that instead of like can we force some truckers to get a vaccine even though they live in a in a tractor trailer cab it, we it's crazy this is why i don't debate. I just get emotional and start yelling um let's look at some comments now um thanks for the super chat defrost. And uh, Kathy Hansen says, I would like to hear your thoughts on post COVID emotional trauma and healthcare workers. This is huge. Healthcare workers have been through the ringer as have other people. Home caregivers, people who are, when we discharge that elderly person after a nightmarish ordeal in the ICU with post-intensive care syndrome and permanent brain damage. This, Wes Ely, Dr. Wes Ely and I have done shows on this. They have permanent changes in their brain that look like dementia after being through ICU and having delirium and all the crazy stuff that happens in ICU. Now we have caregivers that are dealing with this. They've seen the worst of the worst. They've been mistreated by everybody. And asked to do more and more with less and less, you know, while preserving all the metrics that they get, you know, paid on, patient satisfaction, all this. And they have patients coming in who are like, I don't want no vaccine. Give me ivermectin because I watched somebody on Brett Weinstein's podcast say this and that and Robert Malone. And they have to deal with all this every day. And then they hear me talking about opening all pandemic restrictions. And it's like the final knife in the gut, right? It's traumatic, you guys. Like it's a real trauma. What they've been through. And of course no one in society cares because they've all, you know, they're all worried about themselves. They have their own problems. They have their own societal trauma. They have their own contagion of anxiety and fear. We're all operating out of fear. So yeah, we better have resources and a way to deal with that because it's real and it's it's going to continue. We're talking about long COVID. What about long PTSD from treating COVID? How about that? And now they're talking about like, I think federal government's talking about capping nurses' wages and all this, and nurses are washing on, are washing, are marching on Washington DC and all of this. And look, I don't know the details of that, and I I don't get involved in like labor stuff, but I'll say this, if we don't treat nurses right, if we don't treat physicians right, and sometimes that means tough love for physicians, because physicians have been jackasses for a long time, been complicit in a fee-for-service mill because it works for them. I know, because I was in it, right? I benefited from it for a long time. And, it, and the moral incongruity of it, the moral injury of it overall just started eating at me to the point where I, I, I had to do something different, right? I had to say, well, how do we fix this? But many people are still trapped in that moral conflict and it hurts them. It's a death by a thousand paper cuts every day. So we have to, this is the conversation we ought to be having, not should we mandate masks for two-year-olds, stop it. Let kids be kids, let them play, let them have recess outside, inside, wherever, without masks, where they they do what they do as kids. We've overstructured them and we've turned everything into this left brain reductionist, parts make the whole. How about the whole? Let these kids love each other the way we used to where we go out and play and go biking and hang out and play sports and do all the things we did. Like we've really, deprived, we've overparented these kids into oblivion. They're so fragile now, they're so anxious, they're so stressed and they're all glued to these stupid things, they're addicted. You don't think this is an addiction. This is, this is one of the biggest crises we, crises we have now is this. You don't feel the compulsion to check your phone? You're not a, you're not a human. Because it's, it's, it's rigged right into our dopamine center. It's hijacked our limbic system and it's feeding us garbage based on algorithms that know us better than we know ourselves. Look at the YouTube algorithm, see what it feeds you. Tell me it doesn't know you better than you know yourself. It's showing you stuff you didn't even know you wanted to see and you're like, damn, that's pretty good. Used for good, that's a powerful technology. Think how much we could grow people if the algorithms cared about that kind of thing. They don't, they care about ad revenue, clicks, attention. They're trying to get your, hijack your attention for as long as possible. That's what they're doing. There's 1,300 people watching this right now. Clearly I've hijacked your attention and I wanna keep it for as long as possible if I wanna get paid the YouTube way, which is ads, huh? But how do I actually really get paid? Like there's new incentive models, there's new ways to actually do creativity, to do um, community, right? So we do a subscription thing or a donation thing, and then people who really care form a mini tribe and we have these conversations and we share certain values. And it turns out that our tribe is a tribe that's value is, hey, we should value all the tribes. They're all true but partial, right? Trying to build this alt-middle synthesis viewpoint. It's very, it's actually, it can give you a little dopamine burst in itself but you have to you have to be exposed and understand what's going on and get out of those bubbles. It's hard. I find myself in bubbles all the time. And what's crazy now is I can see it happening and go, oh, ooh, ooh, look at that. I'm going back into this bubble. I'm going back into that bubble. And my problem as an independent is I often find myself in both the political bubbles kind of struggling, right? Because there's parts of me that's like, hell yeah, those truckers block it all, man. Shut down all the plants until they pull back these stupid mandates. And then my other bubbles like, Dude, what the hell is wrong with these <laughs> truckers, man? <laughs> like, so many, a small group of people can paralyze so many poor, you know, poor people who are working in the auto industry got to be laid off because the supply chain's been cut off. Like, You have to be able to hold all these truths simultaneously and see the context in which they're put, and that takes some work and some practice and some introspection, which is why I'm really into talking about meditation and spirituality and those kind of things because—and the shows that I do about those get hardly any views, but I'm going to keep doing them because until we actually introspect and grow ourselves, we can't actually have the tools to have these conversations properly to make sense of the world, to be better stewards of democracy. We can't. Better stewards of technology. Um, Let me look at some of these comments. Uh, David says, please talk about California, uh, Buffy Wicks, Buffy the vaccine player, Democrat of Oakland, Employer mandate bill, even after SCOTUS ruling, even after Biden mandate. So, I mean, I don't know that particular bill. I just say that I think that mandates are dumb. They're counterproductive. They're going to lead to more reactivity and they're unnecessary, especially in California. Like this place is like, come on, what, what marginal benefit are you gonna get from the vaccine, from the mandates beyond the, the joy, the dopamine joy of forcing somebody to do what you want or virtue signaling to others that you're a good person by forcing them to, to you know, be healthy. Um, it's not good. Christine, thanks for the super chat. Uh, let me scroll back here. Okay. I know I'm going to miss some super chatters and I apologize. Let me change this from top chat to live chat so I can see all the chats. Here we go. Hamaloy says, uh, I had to leave the ER as a nurse. The demands and expectations with shorter than short staff broke me. If I hadn't left... I would have likely killed myself. Okay, so here's the scary thing is she's not alone. I get these messages all the time and they use that same language. I would have hurt myself. I would have killed myself. I myself had said, if I had stayed in my job at Stanford as a hospitalist until now, I would already be dead because I would have seen no way out I would not have been open in the way that I am now through, through just tons of introspection and trying, to, trying consciously to do that, open myself to return on serendipity and return on luck. I would have continued and been morally injured and injured and injured and injured until something would have snapped. So you're not alone. I know it's really hard. A lot of people have stood up and said, this is not for me, and that's the great resignation or the great quit, right? Where people have just said, enough employers in healthcare better open their eyes that this is happening because they're gonna have a crunch. They already do, they cannot find people. These are smart, empathic, caring people that if they're brave enough and they introspect, they realize they're not living their authentic story working for somebody who doesn't value them, who doesn't give them the tools, the resources and the autonomy to be them, well, they're gonna walk and they're gonna find something, they will. They absolutely will. I'm telling you, if you're a healthcare worker, and this is just every day you get up, you're dreading going into work, you hate it, find another job in healthcare. You can. And if you don't want to be in healthcare, really, really, really look at rewriting your story. I did a show with Johnny Truant, who's a writer. We talk about rewriting your story. What's the theme? What's the plot? Who are the supporting characters? Act one, act two, act three, the hero's journey. All of this is on offer, and, but you have to do the work and you have to be open and it's very scary and very hard. But what's the alternative? Mental illness, clinical and subclinical. What you're talking about, people hurting themselves, we see it at higher rates in nursing and medicine than almost anywhere. Let's talk about that, you guys, right? These are, these are existential issues for people um, and yet we're talking about you know, mandating a booster for healthcare workers who've already had COVID. If you, if you have a mandate and you have an exemption for people who've been infected, wouldn't that change a lot of the dynamic? And that almost went through and it just barely didn't because a couple of chumps dissented on whatever secret panel was making these decisions. Come on. Brad, thank you for the super chat. Um, it's not letting me scroll back as far as I'd like. KT Stiller, thank you stilter for your super chat. Let's see here, gotta rewrite daily, Vicky Doc. That's right, every day you're looking at like, okay, what's going on? Like, is the plot right? Am I consistent with the theme of my life story here? And you know, so so Johnny had a book called The Story Solution that you can get on Kindle uh, or on Audible. I like it on Audible because he reads it. It's really good. You know, he here was a guy who, He was a genetics PhD candidate and he thought, okay, my motivation, my character's motivation is I, I really want to be the best, right? And then he realized it wasn't that. He just wants to improve at something all the time and that he was in the wrong genre of story. He was in the science story, whereas in fact, he was a writer. And he found the tropes in the science world, like the real seriousness and the heart, the diligence and the planning and all that, that wasn't him. So he was stuck in the wrong genre. So he had to change the genre. So this idea of looking at like writing, like how do you write a, a fictional novel, right? Or what are the elements of that? And applying it to your life is very powerful. Um, Priscilla says, we can only take abuse from the patients and management for so long before the human body snaps nurses. Had to make drastic changes. It's unsustainable for most people. And it's only gotten worse. And I'll tell you, I'll say something else. So, If you haven't read Ian McGilchrist's The Master and His Emissary, don't because it's really long and hard to get through, but watch Ian uh, on the Rebel Wisdom podcast. Um, He talks about this basic idea of left brain, right brain. And it's not what pop culture says, right? It's more that these are two kind of separate minds that inhibit each other through the corpus callosum, the fibers that connect the two hemispheres of the brain. And the old teaching that like, oh, the left brain is all science and math and smartness, and the right brain is this silent, like hippie voice, like this kind of emotional thing is just simply not true. It's much more interesting than that. And if you look at how how society evolves, it evolves from a right brain looking at context, relations, where a piece fits into the whole. And the right brain's emissary is the left brain because the left brain is evolved to break things into parts, to grasp at stuff, because the left brain actually motor-wise controls the right body. So if you're right-handed, which most people are, the left brain is what's talking, it's doing language, which is a reduction into parts, into subject and object, into me and you. It is grasping with the right hand. It's writing with the right hand. It's taking bits out of the environment and breaking them down for further processing. That's the role of a servant. That's the role of a computer. That's the role of a tool. So what's the right brain? The right brain sees the big picture, gets the input from its tool, and intuits an understanding that cannot be put into words that's often conveyed in body language that's often conveyed nonverbally so what's happened in society is the left brain the emissary consistently starts to think it's the master and you get the increased reductionism materialism and bureaucracy the administrative technocracy of healthcare what used to be this very right-brained intuitive go to the house exchange a chicken for a for a services understand your life story, know your hopes, dreams and fears and do the best we can with the limited science we had, health 1.0, the old days, is now health 2.0, which is, no, 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 it's all about assembly line, Toyota lean manufacturing processes where we take human health and we break it into the parts. Very left brain we categorize those parts and we measure each of those parts. And then we optimize our processes to optimize the measurement parameters for each of those parts. And then what'll happen is of course, if you optimize the measurement processes for hemoglobin A1C and BMI and smoking cessation and depression screening index and, blood pressure parameters, diastolic and systolic, and you optimize each of those parameters with various pharmaceutical reductionist measures like lisinopril and beta blockers and statins and so on and so forth, Um, we can then optimize health and we can measure those outcomes using an electronic health record, which is a, actually a data entry system whereby we can monitor the inputs from our data entry clerks, nurses, and doctors, and pharmacists, and respiratory therapists, and dietitians, and social workers, and case managers, and follow, take that data and further optimize the individual parts left, 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 left. And then we can create an administrative technocracy, bureaucracy that grows year over year to manage the healthcare so that we can make sure we squeeze out the most profit from the raw inputs, which are patients, staff, nurses, doctors, and then the other end measure an outcome that we like, which is uh, hemoglobin A1C, BMI, and blood pressure. The ascendancy of the left brain, how's that working for us? And the right brain silently, because it has no voice, watches in horror. The right brain is that, that nonverbal voice in your head, that gut intuition that's telling you this is wrong. This is broken. You are better than this. Get out. That's what it's telling you. But the left brain's like, but my mortgage, and according to my calculations, if I continue working in this position, I'll retire with a pension at approximately 66.7 years old. And your right brain's telling you, you'll be dead before then. You'll be dead inside. You won't care. This is not living. The right brain looks at COVID and goes, this is not living. This is not a way to live. This is not a way to have a cohesive society. The left brain goes, but if we mask 72.6% of the population and mandate the following, we can increase vaccination levels by 13.6% in the various communities. You see how it works? And that corpus callosum that binds the two hemispheres and tells the other one to shush while the other one is is doing its thing, somehow now is favoring the left brain, and McGilchrist makes the argument that over time civilizations get more and more left brain until they fall apart, until they fail, until the Roman bureaucracy falls, the Greek bureaucracy falls. Where are we now? How does it feel to live in this society where we're all just a like or a dislike or a happy emoji or a sad emoji away, where you know even public health has been reduced to simple mandates What happened to our context, our relation, our relational brain? What happened to the sublime? What happened to the spiritual center of all of this, the meaning of it all? That's our right brain. Our right brain is a direct hole into, you know, seeing the face of God, even if you're not religious, like the awe and the sense of wonder of how is there something rather than nothing? How is it we instinctively know we're all deeply connected? How is it we can have mystical peak experiences of pure transcendent love and unconditional acceptance of everything and everyone? And all it takes is maybe walking in nature or sitting in a church or looking through a telescope at the earliest stars, the earliest galaxies and the hundreds of millions of light years away and seeing ancient light fall on your retina and feeling the awe of oh my God, and realizing this is only happening now. There's only ever been this. There's only ever been this now. Why am I worried about the future and regretting the past when all there ever has been is this and I'm overlooking it every single second because my left brain is using language in thought to trap me constantly, hey, bro, you need to go to the bank, and oh, you know that guy at work who bothered you? You should think about that again. Here's a thought about that, and here's about a billion things you could do and say to him or her that'll really get him back and show him that you're the boss because you're an ego that's separate from him, and so on and so forth, and so on and so forth, and then we have the world that we have now. The only way to save us is to transcend that, and yet, who's doing that? When can we do that now? Only now, there's only now, there's just this. Open your mouth for five seconds of speech. Where did those words come from? From the void, from nothing, from the now. That's how you should live everything, spontaneously, authentically. Every single interdependent thing in the universe is happening right now with maximal exertion here as you. That is beautiful. If we lived like that, it'd be a different world, wouldn't it? George Shepard, the James Webb Telescope. Oh man, I can't wait. Just look at the James Webb Telescope. Sure, it's $10 billion and years over budget and years over schedule and all of that. When it opens its eyes in a couple few months and looks at the infrared Stretched wavelengths from the origins of the universe. Oh my God, just think about with all our, you know, we, we, oh, we're such flawed, you know, broken creatures, these humans just out of the primordial ooze. We collectively decided that we would spend $10 billion and the brain power of how many hundreds of thousands of people across the world, the European Space Agency, the US, to hoist a set of mirrors into space to answer the question, where did we come from? That's when the left brain and the right brain team up. And the right brain's like, Who are you? And the left brain's like, let's go find out. That's the James Webb telescope. I was shitting my pants when they launched that thing because there were about a thousand things that could have gone wrong and ruined the mission. And there's still things that can go wrong. It has like a thousand moving parts. It's the most complicated piece of engineering like man has ever foisted into space. And it's got one job. It's not making anybody money. It's not, you know, some social media star. It's not an influencer. It's looking at the origins of everything. It's looking at nearby planets, looking at their atmospheres to see could they support life? Are there hydrocarbons? Is there oxygen? The deepest questions that mankind has. That's when the left brain and the right brain, master and emissary, work together. That's the whole. It's beautiful. Looking at your comments. Wait until you realize NASA is a Ponzi scheme. Ian McGilchrist rocks. <laughs> Stephanie Ramirez. <laughs> I don't know why. I just thought that was really funny. Um, it is a Ponzi scheme. David says, We've always, we always build two of everything. So if the first goes up in flames, we have a backup. Yeah, but we didn't with that one. Um, we didn't with that one. So, man. Roar, Roarier says, uh, With the super chat, I've recently found Russell Brand's YouTube channels, and it reminds me of you and how you talk about the alt-middle. Russell's amazing. Yeah, he's really amazing. Actually, guys, if anyone knows Russell Brand, can you tell him that I would love to do a show with him? I don't like Zoom, but with Russell, it would be amazing. Please tell him. I really admire what he's doing. He's hilarious, too. Um, All right, so I think we can wrap up here, because... It's Sunday and apparently there's a Super Bowl going on in the United States. I had to look up who was in it. (laughs) You know what's funny? I started typing, who is, and Google auto-finished my sentence because it already knows. It said, who is in the Super Bowl this year? And I was like, how did you know I don't know anything about sports? Um, I guess it's the Bengals and... uh, the LA Rams, I know that the 49ers lost in the playoffs because everyone around here was sad. And I was like, what does this mean? It's important though, you guys. like, I'm gonna defend sports for a second even though I don't understand them or participate or do it. Um, These are massive conglomerations of hive minds together with a common purpose, watching people excel at something with a tribal aspect to it. I mean, it's deeply human stuff. So I highly, highly, highly uh, respect that whole thing. It's just not my, it's not my thing. I'd rather just stare at the James Webb. My Google feed is full of like James Webb news. Like, here's what's going on with the Webb telescope today. And I'm like, what's happening today? Oh, they started to align the 13 massive mirrors and they deployed the five tennis court-shaped, tennis court-sized thin membranes that, listen to this, you guys. It's just crazy. Okay, now I'm just self-indulgent. I'm sorry. If you're, if you're into science, you're along for the ride here. So the James Webb Telescope is different from the Hubble in that both get out of the atmosphere so that you can get beyond the distortions of the atmosphere out into space where it's quite clear and you can see farther. So you don't need as much mirror space. But the difference is Hubble mostly focuses in the visible spectrum of light that we can see what James Webb focuses on is the infrared spectrum of light, that's heat. So when you have an infrared lamp here, one of these heat lamps at like wherever where you go to get food, you feel it, right? You feel it as heat. When you have a fireplace going and it's behind glass and you feel that heat, that's infrared radiation. And it's infrared, meaning it's below red. It's longer wavelengths and less energetic than visible light. And X-rays and things are even shorter. So. What's happened here is, and this is fascinating, why look in infrared, right? Why, what do we care, like uh, that sort of spectrum of, of, of light? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is infrared is long enough that it can actually pass through a lot of dust and gas in space. So if you're looking at a nebula, which is a cloud of dust and gas, you can look right through it. If you're looking through space, you can imagine over hundreds of millions of light years The intervening dust and gas can actually block a lot of visible light, so you're only seeing some of what's actually coming through. But infrared, you'll see a lot more. But here is the best part about infrared. When the Big Bang happened, people go, my daughter just asked me this question. Daddy, when the Big Bang happened, like what is it Big Banging into? Because doesn't it include space in it as it goes? What's it going into? and i said well that's that's the thing isn't it nothing or another dimension but it is space and time expanding like that's what's amazing about it right so as the universe expands the earliest galaxies that are the farthest away from us in the expansion right space is actually stretching and with it, the light that has been coming towards us at the speed of light is stretched. So visible wavelengths, remember I said they're closer together, they're more energetic, they get pulled apart in what's called red shift. And that lengthening of the wavelength shifts the visible light into infrared. And it's the shift is more remarkable the farther back in time you go, because they're moving away even faster, the, the space is being stretched that quickly. So this means that with infrared, we'll be able to see like 100 million years or something really trivial after the Big Bang. Like what were the earliest things that formed right after the Big Bang? Crazy, right? It's nuts, it's like, the best thing. I can't wait. It's it's just going to be so awesome. So all that being said, the last thing I want to say is, does any of this matter? Probably not. The only thing that matters is that you are awake and alive and aware right now. Let that sink in. You're awake and aware right now. You are alive in this moment with me. You're sharing it That's all that matters. That's all that's actually happening in the entire universe right now is this. All right, guys. That was Sunday Live. <laughs> oh, uh, uh. I'm really deeply grateful to you guys for being with us. Uh, this is you I, I can feel you guys, really. That's, and that's not like woo-woo stuff. It's like, it's one field of awareness that we are. So that being said, you know what to do. We're gonna be better in the world. We're gonna end these pandemic restrictions. (coughs) Good luck. It'll happen. Things will get better. And if a next variant comes that changes our minds, we'll change our minds together and I'll be the first to tell you. All right, guys. I love you, you know what to do. Come support us on Locals, zdogmd.locals.com. You can hit us with a one-time donation and I'll hit you with an email. Just check your spam box in case you don't get it. paypal.me forward slash and we are out. Go Bengals and Rams. I'm not gonna take a side, because I don't wanna die. <laughs> All right, guys, we're out, peace.